perhaps redo some things properly, fix some mistakes. Probably if I went back a few years, there are a few things I did which I wouldn't do again. And perhaps there are a few things that I would do that I didn't. But more than anything, I'd like to go back about 2,000 years and meet Peter and John and James, that great pillar of the church. Maybe I stay around for a while and meet the Apostle Paul, listen to him, talk to him. This morning, more than anything, I'd like to meet Barnabas. Those of us who knew Jim Whitelaw knew that he was Barnabas reincarnated. <laughs> Barnabas, the son of consolation, the encourager. Over the last number of years, it's been important to me to be a preacher, but the older I get, the more I realize that it's more important for me to be an encourager. This world we live in, full of discouragement, needs encouragers. Now, I didn't bring my time machine with me this morning, but I did bring my Bible. And we're going to go back 2,000 years, and we're going to listen to Peter, Peter's first sermon. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and verse 14. Dave Dawson was kind enough to enunciate clearly the big idea, the theme of the book of Acts, and we need to remind ourselves about that as we go through this book. The book of Acts continues the story of King. I'm getting a bit of an echo here. The book of Acts continues the story of King Jesus as he establishes kingdom. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit, enabling and assisting Jesus' followers, followers to embrace the Father's mandate, which is to testify to Jews and non-Jews from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth about Jesus' salvation through his death and resurrection. We often talk about the Acts of the Apostles. Some of our Bibles have that title over the book of Acts, I always like to think of the book of Acts as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And today's big idea, I think, in this passage is that the Holy Spirit, who has founded the church, now in chapter 3, he starts in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he starts to announce leaders and preachers to lead and to teach the church and to preach the gospel to the unsaved. Here's our outline. We're going to have an introduction. And Peter starts off by giving an explanation in verses 14 through 21. Uh, Peter rejects their, supp their, their supposition, uh, looking at what happened in the early chapters, in the early verses of this chapter. We saw last week with Dave Brereton, uh, speaking of tongues, uh, the, the mighty wind, <clears throat> the people hearing <clears throat> the wonders of God in different languages. And Peter says, you're wrong about what you think about this. He corrects that. And then he goes on in verses 16 to 21 to refer them to their own scriptures, the Old Testament. And from verses 22 to 36, he proclaims the gospel. He talks about Jesus, about Jesus' life, about his crucifixion and death. He talks about his resurrection, his glorification. And then in verses 37 through 41, he makes an appeal that's where we're going this morning. So let's look at the introduction. <clears throat> Last week in chapters uh, 2, verses 1 to 13, we saw that the Holy Spirit 
founds the church, starts the church, forms the church. And he breaks down language barriers and cultural barriers and reverses the curse at the Tower of Babel. Um, We complain in Quebec because we have two languages. I've had the privilege of teaching God's word in the Congo where there are 450 different languages. Um, And uh, speaking with a group of 300 uh, church leaders where I'm speaking in French, being translated into Swahili, and then having about 13 different groups around the room speaking into different native languages and wondering after third generations, three generations of translation, whether what I was saying was getting through or not. The curse of Babel reversed. And the Holy Spirit creates a perfect union of all true believers since the death of Christ united together in one body. That was last week. This week we'll see that the Holy Spirit equips leaders for the church. And he takes very ordinary men, frightened, very hesitant. If I were going to pick a preacher for the first message in the church, out of the 12 disciples, I wouldn't have picked Peter. But God does his thing, doesn't he? And he's always right. And he empowered Peter and he gifted him. The religious leaders, religious leaders and some onlookers accuse the believers of being drunk. Now, I was raised on a naval base. My dad was in the Navy. I know a little about drunkenness. I saw a lot of drunk people. Um, But the worst of them weren't drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. The passage tells us that it was the third hour. The Jewish clock started at 6 o'clock in the morning. We live in Quebec where in the winter it gets light at 4 o'clock, and in the summer it gets dark at 10 o'clock. In the summer it gets light at 6 o'clock, and in the winter it gets light at 8.30. The closer you get to the equator, the more you have days that are 12 hours long and nights that are 12 hours long. There's no variation throughout the year. And in Jerusalem, where this took place, it's not on the equator, but the days are pretty well equal. The Jews started their days at sunrise at 6 o'clock in the morning. Therefore, the third hour is 9 o'clock. Peter says it's only the third hour. It's only 9 o'clock. And with great wisdom, Peter presents an explanation from their own scripture. Um, You can argue with Peter, but these were Jews, and with the exception of the Sadducees, they respected the Old Testament. The Sadducees respected only the first books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. So Peter refers to them refers them to their own scriptures in verse 16 to 21. And Peter quotes from the book of Joel. Now the book of Joel is one book in the Old Testament where we're not sure when it was written, probably some 800 years before Jesus' birth. And in these verses, he prophesies about what would happen in the last days. And the last days is not talking about the year 2023. The last days refers to the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ, the time when Christ would set up his kingdom. And so far, the last days have lasted over 2,000 years. And Joel, when he wrote this prophecy, did not necessarily understand that Jesus, the Messiah, would come twice, first time in redemption, the second time in judgment, but that's what he prophesied. Now, some elements of Joel's prophecies, uh, prophecy were accomplished on the day of Pentecost, 
the pouring out of the Spirit. Whosoever, should call, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That, that was part of what was accomplished at the day of Pentecost. In other parts of the prophecy um, will be accomplished at the second coming, the signs in heaven, all flesh. But we should remember that these people listening to this message and the apostles remembered that the sun was darkened when Jesus was crucified. And that Jewish Passover always takes place at the full moon. You realize probably that the date of Easter changes every year according to the moon. And the Jewish Passover is always during a full moon. And so perhaps they saw the moon turn red. I'm not sure. Perhaps these prophecies about signs of heaven were accomplished during that Passover. We should remember that before John the Baptist and, for, and Jesus, there had been no prophets for 400 years since the time of Malachi. So this prophecy of Joel was very, very down where people were living. They were anxious to have prophets like they had in the Old Testament. So Peter refers them to their own scriptures. I wonder as I read through this prophecy of the book of Joel, and he says, all flesh, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If Peter, the apostles, the people listening realized that that included the non-Jews. <laughs> Joel's prophecy, dread, fear for unbelievers, judgment, assurance for believers, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice through Peter's sermon how carefully and how often he quotes the scriptures. In, in only 28 verses here, he quotes no fewer than three passages from the Old Testament. True preaching is based on exploring, explaining and applying the scriptures. And then Peter turns to proclamation in verses 22 to 36. He proclaims, and his sermon is entirely Christ-centered. The crowd listening to Jesus, excuse me, the crowd listening to Peter had rejected Jesus. They had rejected him. They had cried out, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And they had seen Jesus condemned and they had seen him die on a cross. And we need to realize that for these people listening to Peter, the Messiah was the one who would deliver them from their enemies, who would set up a terrestrial kingdom deliver them from the Romans. And a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't believe in that. One author says it's like fried ice. Now, when you go to a restaurant and order, or you go to a Dairy Queen or a place that serves ice cream, you don't, don't ask for fried ice. Fried ice is an oxymoron. It can't exist. You can't fry ice. And to the Jews, to crucify Messiah is absolutely ridiculous, impossible. And they didn't realize that the death of Christ is a victory, not a defeat. So Peter talks about Jesus' life. They tell us, he tells them that he was a Nazarene. The Nazarene was a despised people. Up near Nazareth in the northern part of the Galilee, Lake of Galilee, there was a lot of Roman and Greek culture. That was far from the temple. They had a funny accent. They were despised. They were uneducated. They were looked down upon. And Jesus was a Nazarene. Perhaps an excellent example is humiliation. 
born in a stable, born of a poor family, born of a family which returned to Nazareth. But Jesus not only was a Nazarene despised and looked down upon, he was attested by God. And that's more important than anything else. He was a miracle worker. He made wonders and signs. And Peter tells us that God himself performed these miracles through Jesus. And Peter says, you know these things. You cannot claim ignorance. You saw what he did. And even Jesus' enemies admitted that he performed miracles. We see the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees meeting together and plotting against Jesus. And they say, we can't deny. We can't deny it. He, he's performing these signs. We, we can't deny them. And all this is undeniable proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Talking about miracles, I'm thinking of David Hume, the British philosopher who pretended, who, that's a French, I'm saying a French word in English, who, who claimed that miracles do not exist. And he denied the New Testament because he said miracles are impossible. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors in his book called Miracles, said this. Now, of course, we must agree with David Hume that if there, there is absolutely, if that that if there is absolutely uniform experience, if, in other words, they, these miracles never happened, why then they have never happened? Unfortunately, we can know the experience against them to be uniform only if we know that all the reports of them are false. In other words, we can believe that miracles are impossible if all the stories, if all the, uh, the, the, the history that tells about miracles taking place, if we know that they are false. And we can know all the reports to be false only if we already know that the miracles never occurred. But we weren't there. We weren't there. We cannot know absolutely that miracles never occurred. And Lewis says, in fact, we are arguing in, circle, in a circle. And brothers and sisters, a lot of what is said by people who reject the scriptures is based on circular reasoning. Secondly, Peter talks about his crucifixion and his death. Jesus, Peter tells us, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was a God had planned to you, to you Jews for whom the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, is a scandal, proof that he is not the Messiah, I, want, I, Peter, want you to know that his death and his crucifixion was part of the definite plan, part of the foreknowledge of God from all eternity. This was God's plan for Messiah. And you crucified him, and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. The most heinous of all crimes. God used evil men to accomplish his purpose that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. And God did that without violating their will or removing their guilt. What a paradox. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. I believe that God is 100% sovereign and that man is 100% responsible. And if you try to think that through too much, you'll go crazy. You'll end up in a psychiatric ward. I don't understand that. But then I don't want a God who I understand completely. It doesn't bother me that God is above me and that I can't understand his ways exactly. So God is sovereign. 
man is responsible, and that's just the way it is. If I don't understand it, maybe I'll understand it someday in heaven. Thirdly, Peter talks about his resurrection. You crucified him. You had your way. But God raised him up. God delivered him from the agony of death. Wonderful picture in the Greek language here. That word agony is the word adinas, which means birth pains. Every, elsewhere in the scriptures, every place where that Greek word is used is talking about the birth pains of a woman giving birth. Now, my kids are adopted. My, mother, my wife never went through, was spared birth pains. Um, we got a call from Dr. Hill from those who know who he was. On Wednesday, we never thought about adoption. And he asked us if we were going to have a baby, and I said, when? And he said, tomorrow. <laughs> and the next day at noon, we went and got a baby. Um, so we didn't go through birth pains. We had 24 hours of stress. Went to, not Walmart, but Wilco, for those who are older, <laughs> and picked up two bottles and 12 cotton diapers, and that's our preparation. That was our birth pains. But my daughter and my daughter-in-law had babies, and I was always there two hours after birth to hold the baby and pray for the baby. Um, so I know that having baby is painful. And death was painful for our Lord Jesus Christ, but the pain of giving birth is, do I dare say me a man, <laughs> forgotten, passed over, becomes less important when the baby is born? And all the death pangs, the birth pangs which our Lord Jesus Christ experienced, were, finished by the were followed by the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ is the central theme of apostolic preaching. It's the climax of the story of redemption. More than anything else, it proves that Jesus is the Messiah. It proves that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And referring to this word, adinas, referring to this word, birth pangs, one author said, the grave could no longer hold Jesus captive than a pregnant woman could hold her child in her body. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus, first of all because of his divine power, second of all because of, his prof because of prophecy. And we're going to read from verses um, 29, please. But we'll start again um, at verse 26, uh, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, David has just, uh, Peter has just quoted Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. And then Peter says something interesting. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us in this city. Uh, Peter was standing about a kilometer from where David's grave was and every Jew in that city knew where that grave was and visited it. It was a very important landmark for them. 
Peter is saying, we know where David's grave is. We know where his body is. Being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus could not be held by death because of his divine power, but second of all, because of prophecy. David is buried. His tomb was well known, close to where Peter was standing. This prophecy could not concern David. It concerned a greater than David. It pointed to Messiah. The insurance of resurrection was a source of God's, of Jesus' gladness. And last of all, Peter speaks about Jesus' glorification. His ascension and his glorification. In the New Testament, it's very difficult to distinguish, to distinguish between Jesus' ascension and his glorification. It's all one put together almost. Jesus' ascension is a neglected doctrine. About two years ago, I was invited to speak at, on Easter Sunday at a local church in the area where I live in Three Rivers. And uh, I dared to speak on the ascension. Um, and um, I did that because I never preached on the Ascension because I'd never heard a sermon on the Ascension. Never heard a sermon on the Ascension. So I dared to do that. I had different reactions from people. It's a neglected doctrine. But for the New Testament, Jesus' Ascension is his glorification. He is exalted at the right hand of God. He's received from his Father the promise of the Spirit, accomplishment of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 26, John chapter 16, where Jesus said, when I have ascended, I will give the Spirit to you. Again, Peter supports his teaching from the Old Testament. Peter quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, and the first Lord in this first verse of Psalm 110 is Yahweh, in our English Bibles often represented by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In French we say l'Eternel, uh, which is probably a good translation. Uh, Jehovah, some people translate, uh, will we'll, we'll, we'll say it that way. Um, from the word, from the Greek verb to be, talking about his eternal being. And the second word is Adonai, Adonai, uh, Lord. So a Lord, and, and, and look, look at the context here. These are non-Trinitarian Jews. The, Trinitarian, the Trinity is a mystery in the Old Testament and to a great extent. And Jewish rabbis, if you take time to read some, some of the writings of the Jewish rabbis in the 200 years before Christ, they were confused by this. We have this Lord, Yahweh, talking to this other Lord, Adonai, and he says to him, sit at my right hand. And he who sat on the right hand of a king was the person who would succeed him. He was also glorious. He was also king, often co-regent. Sit at my right hand until I make your knees my your foot hand, 
you're a footstool. Footstool, complete submission. And Peter's argument here is David didn't mount into heaven. David is buried. David is not seated at God's right hand. This prophecy was accomplished by Jesus at his ascension. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, your footstool. Then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> Another thing confused these Jewish rabbis. Here we have a king sitting at the right hand of God and he's going to be a priest? And he's going to be a priest forever? Our high priests die and are replaced, but this is a priest forever. And who is this Lord, this Adonai, Adonai, who is seated at God's right hand, who is also a priest, a king priest? Not acceptable in the Old Testament. You may know the story of Uzziah, this king who, in his old age, this wonderful, godly king, who in his old age became proud and lifted up and silly in his old age. May the Lord take me home before I become silly in my old age. Maybe it's a little bit late, I'm not sure. But, but Isaiah went into the temple and offered sacrifice, took the place of a, of a priest, and, and the priest tried to stop him from doing it, and he did it anyway. And he was struck by leprosy because that was un, unacceptable that he should be king and priest at the same time. And these Jewish rabbis writing and reading say, well, who can be Adonai? Who is he? And who can be God? sing the right hand of God and be a priest as well. But we understand that. We understand that. Our Lord is the priest, the king, the prophet. The term Lord is used of both God, the Father, and Jesus. In verse 21, talking about Jesus, it says, call upon the name of the Lord. In verse 39, it says, the Lord our God, speaking of God the Father. The early proclamation of the church, Jesus is Lord. Polycarp died rather than call anyone else Lord. Polycarp, the great bishop, wonderful godly man, disciple of the Apostle John. He knew the Apostle John personally. Polycarp was respected in the city of Ephesus. Even the Romans respected this elderly holy man. And they went with him, they begged to him, begged him, because every year everybody had to say Caesar is Lord. And they said, just this once, say Caesar is Lord and, and we'll spare you and we'll let you go. Polycarp said, no. Jesus is Lord. And he suffered death in the Roman Colosseum in, the Colosseum in Ephesus because he wouldn't say anybody else was Lord rather than Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The proofs of Jesus' exaltation. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity. The New Testament teaches us that God the Father sent the Holy Spirit. Teaches us also, teaches us also that God the Son, Jesus, sent the Holy Spirit. What more evidence than that do we need of Christ's divinity? This proof text from Psalm 110 was understood as messianic by the Jews in the measure which they understood it. 
Jesus is sitting at right, God's right hand. Jesus is bringing on the defeat of his enemies. I will make your enemies your footstool. The appeal. I'm going to read verses 37, 36 to 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've just seen that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise of the Spirit made by Jeremiah and Ezekiel is for you and for, the, for your children and for all who are far off, <laughs> Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this God, that God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Guys, you're on the wrong side. You're opposing God. You're rejecting his Messiah. Messiah. Jesus is Lord. And Peter is telling them that they're on dangerous ground. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, he says in verse 40. Conclusion. The listeners were cut to the heart. Conviction of sin. They realized that they were sinners. Now sin isn't um, a popular concept today. It's a laughing matter. In French, when someone is living in common law, we say, en vie dans péché, and we laugh about it. I was at a wedding not too long ago where, uh, well, actually it was a while ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, where they hired a, a professional master of ceremonies. And this was a good couple. They loved the Lord, good Christian people. And uh, they hired a master of ceremonies who was not a believer. And um, uh, during the meal, he said, all those been married for... Less than one year, stand up. And they say, everybody married for less than five years, stand up. And then 10 years and 20 years and 40 years. At the end, he said, all those who are living in sin, stand up. Uh, the couple was devastated. <laughs> I don't think anybody from our church ever invited him to be the rest of ceremonies again. But that, that's the attitude we have towards sin in our life. Sin is serious. These people were cut to the heart. They realized that they had sinned. Have you been rejecting Christ? Have you been rejecting his lordship? Because Jesus is Lord. Is he Lord of your life? They cried out, what shall we do? I hope that's your cry this morning if you don't know Christ. What shall we do? And the answer was to repent. Turn away from sin. Turning towards God. 
forsaking sin, hating sin, turning with total commitment to God. And they were baptized, and that was a good thing. Baptism doesn't save. It's a sign of the reality that has taken place in their hearts already. It's a public confession that they've renounced all religion and have accepted Christ by faith. And these 3,000 people, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock that morning, they obtained forgiveness of sins. Psalm 32 says, Blessed, happy, very happy is a person who has the forgiveness of sins. And this forgiveness of sins came not by works, not through religious system, not through moralism or some heritage because I was born a Jew or my parents were good Christians, not by some ritual. Christ has already paid the price for your sin on the cross. That's why he died. Not because the Jews delivered him to Pilate. They didn't really have the power to do that. Jesus gave his life for our sins. The penalty that we richly deserve for our sins, Jesus took that on himself. And when God treated him as if he had committed every sin that you have ever, ever committed. And salvation is simple. Turning from sin, turning to Christ, accepting what Christ has already done for you. Oh, will you consider with me the grace of God in this sermon? You killed by horrible, terrible crucifixion the very Son of God, the Messiah, who had done so much good and taught so well the truth. Despite the fact that you did that, God the Father of this Messiah is offering you his salvation. Now that's grace. That's unmerited favor. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, consider the grace of God. If you're not a child of God this morning, now is the time when you need to turn to Christ for salvation. And consider the seriousness of refusing that grace until I make your enemies your footstool. This morning you have a choice. God is your enemy or he's your savior. Make the right choice this morning. We're going to pray. I need to leave. My, I don't like running away after preaching, but I have three grandchildren doing a recital this morning, this afternoon at 2 o'clock. i got to get back to Three Rivers. Um, but you know something? I would miss the first half hour of that recital as much as that would cost me. Uh, if you need to talk about salvation this morning, the elders of this church would love to talk to you. Oh, this morning, make the choice. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Lord God, we turn to you. We thank you for this message from Peter. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for his courage in confronting these people, telling them the truth. Thank you for Jesus. Father, we could think for 70 years and we never think of a kind of salvation like this plan of salvation you prepared for us. What grace. That God, the creator, second person of the Trinity, should become a man, born as a baby, humbly, become a Nazarene, despised. Would deliver himself up to die to take our sins on him. So that he, our sins will be punished on him and not on us. Thank you for your grace, despite the fact that we rejected and sinned, lived, wanting to be free, 
of your lordship, God the Father. Despite that, you offer us your grace, your salvation. Oh, we confess that Jesus is Lord. Pray for each of us that know you that we will live as if that was true in our hearts. And for each person here today who may not know you as Savior, that today they might turn to you for salvation.